0: Hello there and welcome to I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I'm Troy and next to me as usual in the virtual space is my dear friend and mentor, Pastor Brian McDowell. How are you, Pastor Brian?
1: Wow, mentor and you're calling me a pastor. Wow. I think this will send me back into therapy. Thank you so much for that. I, I'm great. I am fantastic. It's um, it's the beginning, beginning of a week where I'm going away for a holiday at the end of this week, just for a week to get away. So I am looking forward. There's light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Now we've got somebody that's going to be quite stimulating and interesting for the podcast today, as opposed to all the other boring shits we've had of late. Why don't you do the introductions, Brian?
1: <laughs> we have not had any boring shits. Oh, no, we've never so. had boring shits since we started, including ourselves. Yeah, this is true. And so who it is today is Van Baddam. So Van is an Australian author, activist, social commentator, and Van has an incredibly diverse and interesting career in life. Van's playwright, an author of books and poetry, um, a social Commentary and journalism, articles with The Guardian, New York Times, Bloomberg, Irish Times, Sydney Morning Herald, the Melbourne Age, but also has some fundy street cred in that she has two former partners who were cult survivors, one of Hillsong and one of the Little Pebble cult. But also, Van did a gear in Hillsong, a little bit undercover, journo stuff. We're looking forward to hearing about that, but welcome, Van.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Oh no! It's it's a pleasure, and one of Van's late, latest pieces of work was a book called "Q and On and On." And "Q and On" for me is a a little bit of a pet project. I have been. Yeah, you facing, do. You do love a bit of Q and On. I, I do love a idea. bit of Q and On. I have a, a couple of uh, people in my life who have been drawn into Q and On without religious backgrounds necessarily, and they don't even acknowledge that they are drawn into QAnon. So they're saying, I don't know QAnon, but my response has been, yes, but QAnon knows you because they're obviously getting into your algorithms.
2: Then what
1: led you to write a book about QAnon?
2: Well, obviously because I dated a couple of guys in the past who were cult survivors, I've always had this particular interest in cults, and sort of a, a sense of mission to destroy them. So, both of the guys who I had been seeing, and this is many, many years ago now, were very scarred by their experiences of cult participation. Both had been dragged into these sort of communities as children. Uh, one had been made homeless when he was purged from the cult when he was a teenager. The other one stayed in the cult a lot longer out of a sense of family loyalty, deep social connections and, and immersion. And they, they were both so damaged by these experiences that they had and me with the proximity to them as friends really gave me this sense that, that these kind of organisations and communities were desperately evil and damaging for people. So I think I've taken that kind of fascination that came through personal experience and this proximity to this damage into uh, uh, the kind of work that I do at The Guardian, my journalistic interests and my artistic interests as well. And over the course of many years, I mean, those relationships are very in the past now. I have stayed with this sort of theme and accumulated this knowledge and this experience and this sort of witnessing of how cults operate. So certainly writing a book about QAnon came very naturally because I had that kind of context. But more specifically, I encountered QAnon very early on, probably as early as 2018 when I started getting a a new flavour of abuse on the internet Because I'm a woman and I write commentary and my job is to have opinions, you can imagine that the internet can be a very toxic and hostile space for me. And around 2018, I started getting these horrendous messages that unlike the kind of abuse I had become accustomed to. So overwhelmingly, I get abused by either people on the far left who don't think I'm far left enough or people on the far right who are neo-Nazis and hate everybody. But this new sort of theme occurred in the commentary I was getting that was very evangelical in its language that talked about a fight between uh, light and dark and this sort of notion of of a cabal because you go through the messages when somebody attacks you and you try and get your head around who this person is and where they've come from and what the sort of framework ideology explaining the abuse might be. And it was this quasi-religious language about great awakenings and um, the storm is coming and these I now know to be QAnon slogans. But at the time I encountered them, I was like, what is this? And created a whole new file on my computer for the kind of abuse I was getting. And, of course, I made some bookmarks and used some search terms and American journalism had started to pick up on the emergence of this cult, which we now know as QAnon, and this strange meshing of far-right paranoia, really ancient racism and anti-Semitism and also this borrowed language from American evangelical Protestantism. And it's it's been quite a ride since I made those early bookmarks and and started to research the cult and its adherence more deeply.
1: And and of course, Van, being an, an internet-based cult, I mean, we, we do see meetings. I actually, online during COVID, um, we're based in Melbourne, so lots of Lots of lockdowns, um, but there was lots of, of protests happening and you would see QAnon banners even in Melbourne, in Australia. And I saw people who were definitely involved in that fundamentalist Christian scene back in the day when I was who started to really latch on to QAnon. And even though it didn't have an explicitly religious message at at the start, and as you say, it was a bit cryptic, and you're like, what the fuck is this? It really rose to prominence pretty quickly, didn't it?
2: It did. It had an incredibly rapid rise because there were a lot of vested interests pushing it from the beginning. So QAnon starts on 4chan, which is like this Wild West internet image board website where you can post anything and became very sort of infamous in the in the two thousands and the the twenty tens for people taking photos of their bowel movements and just the most disgusting competitions to out disgust one another and these this sort of ironic extreme right politic and ironic racism that became non ironic very quickly. And it caught on because of the efforts of a, a small group of people at the beginning who were people who'd been associated with the sort of conspiracy theory scene who set up a Reddit uh, page to talk about these these prophecies that were appearing on 4chan from this person claiming to be a, a high-level government insider, knowing that Donald Trump was waging a war against good and evil and these claims that they knew that Hillary Clinton was going to be arrested and repatriated to Guantanamo Bay any minute now, kind of all of these sort of predictions that are getting made. And this small group of Redditors who set up this community had their content amplified in a matter of days by more than 4,000 Russian government-aligned accounts. So there was a... a the capacity and potential for this kind of internet nonsense to sow division and political discord was recognised very early on by the kind of Russian state operatives who sit on the internet and sort of have the job of stirring up trouble in Western countries and finding communities and issues that can act as points of division and create electoral and political disharmony. There's a very good book written by my friend Nina Yankovic called How to Lose the Information War, where she talks about these kind of strategies specifically from uh, the Russian state that have been used so effectively to amplify and and cause these polarising sort of vicious hatreds of electoral communities in Western countries. And with that kind of help, the theory spread really quickly. And in my book, I go into detail about this happens on the how this happens on the internet and what the sort of structures of dissemination are, and and the way that with a handful of of accounts, if you know where to target information and who to target it to, you can ha- you can essentially guarantee an amplification where you're very inorganic. Participation in a, in an internet community can spurn or uh, it can spur rather organic engagement and get people excited about something. And the QAnon story was very exciting. I mean, the basic premise is that there's a secret cabal of social elites, celebrities, uh, prominent members of the Democratic Party in the United States, these kind of you know left liberal identities are actually all members of a secret cabal of, and I'm not joking, child-eating pedophiles who torture children and sexually abuse them in order to drink their blood uh, and obtain a chemical called adrenochrome from their blood and therefore give themselves immortality and superpowers. And Donald Trump in the QAnon mythos is this amazing genius a four-dimensional chess-playing renegade who got involved in politics because his celebrity exposure had shown him the existence of the cult. And he is working with white hats, good people, secretly hidden in the bowels of American government to expose these dastardly uh, child abusers for what they are and, you know, liberate the world. And the QAnon theory cross- references a number of very old conspiracy theories, um, one of which is the lizard people idea that uh, lizard people live amongst us, that they're space aliens who pretend to be human in order to do evil things and eat babies and achieve global control. This one's been around for quite some time. So various QAnon communities believe that this cabal of child eating elites are also lizard people i mean it is really whack stuff but people believe it and over the course of my research i came to realize that people believe it not because the facts are so solid because as you can imagine the evidence is pretty thin on the ground but people believe this stuff because they want to believe it They want there to be an overriding, you know, mythos and framework that provides explanations for things they don't understand. They want to feel superior over other people by possessing the sort of arcane secret knowledge. They like the community of people who affirm them when all you have to the only price of admission is declaring your belief in this kind of stuff. And then you get a whole bunch of new friends who also believe it, who will encourage you and amplify you and engage with you. And these are the reasons that people have become these light in the eye zealots for this absolutely fact-free conspiracy theory.
0: So Van, listening to you, it sounds a lot like church. I mean, oh. you've got a you've got a group of beliefs that, or a set of beliefs that you need to subscribe to, which are basically, you know, if you scratch the surface, are unprovable or at best even unbelievable. Um, there's community. There's a sense of superiority. All this sounds a lot like church, and and as a matter of fact, a lot of what I understand anyway, and and certainly not all, but a lot of the parallels. Um, sorry, there is a lot of parallels that can be drawn. with with the satanic panic of the 70s and
2: 80s, which was very much an evangelical phenomenon. Oh, absolutely. It's it's satanic panic revisited. And in my research, what became really interesting was to learn that it was a number of panics revisited. In fact, there's an anthropologist called Norman Cohn who talked about this sort of origin of conspiracy belief and dates it back to the Romans two and a half thousand years ago? And certainly, there's a very, very blatant strain of anti Semitism in the QAnon mythos. One of the things I learned in my research was that the whole notion of lizard people uh, exists as a euphemism. So, after the Second World War, a number of countries in Europe, understandably, Uh, legislated against hate speech towards the Jewish community and there were a number of things that you could not say and the expression of anti-Semitism became uh, restricted by these laws against hate speech. And, of course, anti-Semites didn't go away. They just found euphemistic ways of communicating their old hatreds and lizard people was actually a slur for Jewish people well, you get a community of people on the internet who don't know it's so a euphemism, but take the, take the metaphor and absorb it literally into believing that lizard people walk amongst us without necessarily realising that it is actually an anti-Semitic slur.
0: And again, Van, it sounds like church, taking metaphor and interpreting it literally and turning
2: it into a religion. Oh, absolutely, and I actually found it because I'm, I'm still a person of faith. Like my, I, I describe myself as a rational believer. I haven't lost my belief in God, um, despite everything, uh, as you can imagine. But certainly, I live in a rational universe where I make, I, I locate my faith in a very separate place to where I locate my belief in science and material reality, and I found my research incredibly challenging, looking at the, the will to belief and what people are prepared to absorb. And it is, it's quite confronting when you do look at the, the replication of these structures that if you're in a faith community, you absorb as tradition or expectation or just practice and custom ritual and behaviour. And then to see the dark mirror of that in cults that actively harm people, you do ask questions about your level of, you know, your level of uh, willful belief and what you may be mobilized into or prepared to go along with, depending on the various psychological distresses and needs that might provoke you into certain kinds of action. It is really confronting when you look at this stuff structurally and how it works and why it works, who gets involved and what they end up doing. And,
1: and you know, the people who are involved, like the people in my social circle, they're very intelligent people. Like these aren't a bunch of nuffies who are getting sucked into something because they haven't thought about it, but they truly believe they've got the evidence, like the latest one that's coming up. Is the the flight logs of Jeffrey Epstein's plane to his island where they were sexually abusing these children, murdering them, and drinking their blood? You know, and who was on that was you know the A list of, of um, celebrities. You know, there was Tom Hanks, and of course Hillary, Hillary Clinton, and Bill Clinton would have been on that flight log as well. But it's it's listing off all these people, and they believe that is evidence. It's fact. It's undisputable. It's just bizarre. But what are your some of your favourite um, QAnon conspiracies or theories that you've come across in your research?
2: Well, the Pizzagate conspiracy theory, which slightly predates QAnon but sets up the belief system, is still amazing to me. And this was the idea that Hillary Clinton and other political elites were eating children, sexually abusing and eating children in the basement of a Washington pizza restaurant called Comet Ping Pong. I mean, it's just amazing. And this conspiracy theory was advocated very loudly on the Alex Jones show Infowars, Alex Jones being the notorious Sandy Hook denialist conspiracy theorist who was recently sued for tens of millions of dollars for pushing the idea that the Sandy Hook massacre of children was somehow a hoax. Um, the, The Pizzagate conspiracy theory actually resulted in a guy called Edgar Madison Welch, and I talk about this in the book as well, getting some guns, getting in a car and driving to Washington from North Carolina to bust up this basement and liberate these children. He was convinced were in prison there. And he got to the restaurant and as luck would have it, a friend of mine happened to be there on that day and had gone next door to pick up a book from a bookstore, came out of the bookstore and suddenly there were cops everywhere. And he got to the, to the restaurant, which is sort of like this hipster restaurant with an art collection and ping-pong tables and good cocktails and drag shows and things, and it had no basement like he shot up a computer cupboard convinced it was the doorway to this sort of secret torture chamber. And there there wasn't there wasn't a basement. And he's standing there with a gun. He ended up doing four years in prison for the for acting on this absolute nonsense. And the Pizzagate kind of story says everything to me about when people are mobilised, when it goes from being an engaging story to being an the inspiration for a series of potentially violent or even lethal acts, you're in some really terrifying territory. And, of course, we're seeing incidents like this all over the world. I mean, QAnon has a particularly American flavour and, like I said, it does use the language of American evangelical Protestantism. A big concept in QAnon is the idea of the Great Awakening, which is, I mean, explicitly... um, protestant language from the united states historically there have been these great awakenings in the history of the american protestant church where there are revival movements every hundred years or so and that sort of language has just been imported hollis bolus into this q idea but q is everywhere like q is in australia scott morrison's friend tim stewart whose wife worked for Scott Morrison and had access to Curabilly House, which was then the Prime Ministerial residence. Uh, Tim Stewart was a fervent, light-in-the-eyes QAnon believer. He was one of the most influential QAnon accounts on Australian social media, so was his son. And this was a person who was in proximity to the Australian Prime Minister who had access to Curabilly House. In my research, I found there are QAnon communities in Japan. They're in Germany. There was a mass murder in Germany that was inspired by QAnon ideas. They're in uh, Israel. I mean, there was an extraordinary story given the, um, what I, I studying QAnon from the outside, saw as quite blatant and recognisable patterns of anti-Semitism and anti-Semitic myth in the, the QAnon mythos. One of the most famous uh, sort of QAnon incidents uh, was a woman in Arizona in the United States who went absolutely off chops in a Walmart um, at the beginning of the pandemic and trashed a mask stand and filmed herself doing it, sort of screaming and knocking over things in this Walmart and subsequently police came to her house. She filmed herself being arrested. She declared that she was the leader of QAnon and she was obviously very mentally distressed and unwell. But this footage that she shot herself went viral where it turned out that that woman was a Jewish-American woman who was from a family of Holocaust survivors. And after psychiatric intervention, she got better and she came out of the sort of QAnon mode that she was in. I talk about this in the book. And she went on basically a, a world apology tour for having had these sort of very public breakdowns. And somebody said to her, she was interviewed by Heretz, which is an Israeli newspaper, and they were like, but it's so obviously Edison Minnick, you know, you are a, a, a practising Jew, like, what are you doing? And she said it was actually imagery that was used of the Holocaust sort of manipulated in these communities that really set her off, that it, that there, she was in distress, freaking out about the pandemic like everybody else was, and this sort of imagery of, you know, governments acting in a Nazi-like way, and there were these doctored images of uh, Jews being load, loaded onto trains during the Holocaust wearing masks which was not i think that happened the nazis were not interested in protecting jewish communities from german contamination and it flicked some switch in her and she suddenly saw the pandemic and government behavior in this sort of context of of holocaust trauma and she said she just screened out anything that suggested Uh, nefariousness or anti-Semitism because she so wanted to have a framework, she so wanted to have a belief system that could explain what was going on, that could justify and explain the level of fear and trauma that she felt, that it was almost like she couldn't see what was in front of her. And I found her experience like really moving actually and her willingness to talk to people about it and sort of account for what had happened to her very powerful because, you know, she explained she was in distress and it happened very quickly. Over a matter of days, she consumed enough YouTube videos in this sort of terrified state to just imbibe it wholesale to the point where she ended up, you know, the recipient of a psychiatric intervention and with an arrest record because of the behaviour it inspired.
1: I mean, Van, you talked about... Um, you know, facts and things like that. Facts are irrelevant, aren't they, in this? I, I think of Pizzagate, like, very obvious there wasn't a basement there. But it doesn't mean that people don't believe it. Like, even the, no, the fact that there is no basement there, there is no evidence for anything that is said, people then go straight to it's a cover-up. So it, it just, fact doesn't matter.
2: No, not at all. It's about a will to believe and it's about the way that beliefs are used to uh, comfort and and it various kinds of prejudice and also to, to give this sense of superiority and, and fulfilment and community. You have communities of people who are willing to believe anything and the facts are, are slippery to them and the facts change. One of the weirdest experiences you can have when you're researching this stuff. And I must say, researching it is psychologically exhausting because there are some very sophisticated and talented makers of propaganda who create the the content and properties for the disseminate the dissemination of these ideas and they're manipulative they use all the skills that you know you associate with high-end persuasive advertising campaigns you know the triumphal music you know the sort of triumphal drumming and the choruses and the the edits and the powerful symbols all of these things are, are brought together. There are one or two texts in, in particular, which I won't name for the reason that people who have been in distress have encountered them actually cite them as the inciting incident for pushing them over the edge into QAnon belief because, you know, these documentaries, and I use that word with some irony, that don't, that I mean, they're documents, I mean, that's true, but they're not based in any kind of factual reality. They're like pure propaganda that intensely manipulate people. But when you go into the sort of rabbit hole, as I did, putting on your your pith helmet and, you know, wading in, um, the what you confronted with are these like 24-hour conspiracy channels, particularly on Telegram, where there is a constant stream of refreshing content that is targeted and designed to just freak you out. Like some of those channels, they sort of um, Post Q self appointed internet conspiracy prophets who are building their own sort of brand in this space. The sharing never stops. Like every minute, there's a new story and a new theory and a new world event that gets repackaged, re explained, and recontextualized to fit the sort of conspiracy lens. I had to stop uh, checking all my feeds because I had all of these. Persona that I created to infiltrate these communities so I could observe them and meet people and and study what was going on. And I maintained them all after I'd finished the book to sort of keep an eye on these people and to follow the story and, and the continuing narrative of QAnon. And it was at the time that that boat was stuck in the Suez Canal and the conspiracy community went completely bonkers about it They were talking about how the boat was full of uh, frozen children. I'm not actually joking. One of the theories was that children uh, had been put into like freeze-dried containment, packed into the cargo and that these refrigerated children that were going to be shipped somewhere to the cabal to torture and and drain the blood of were all sort of packed like meat on this boat. And the boat uh, was stuck in a sandbar because of the intervention of Donald Trump, who was trying to rescue the children, but the elites had mobilised and it stopped that from happening. And it was just Absolutely bonkers! It was without any kind of meaningful evidence. It was doctored photos and just crazy, and yet you had this whole community of people who were invested in the story, commenting about it, sharing about it, and insisting that. I mean, I've read some things. That Hillary Clinton owned the captain of the ship and the the call sign of the the ship was her former secret service name it wasn't like all of this was just completely made up and yet so many details are provided by so many people it's like crowdsourcing nuttery is what goes on that you I just didn't know who believed it they absolutely believed it Van, I hear you
0: saying, you know, this crowdsourced nuttery. And so I'm, I'm sure that you're saying, and forgive me if I'm wrong, I'm sure that you're saying this has taken on a life of its own. Yet at the same time, though, there are these consistent, you know, channels that you're talking about. What's in it for these people to actually create this stuff, to doctor this stuff, and to drive this stuff? And you did hint at Russian intervention as well, to sort of destabilise America, I guess, socially but who who's got an agenda in this to do all this work
2: well i mean the russian state really gets into it uh, there's also research suggesting that the chinese state and the state of iran i mean these are authoritarian regimes who depend on discord in the West to advocate to their populations that democracy is bad. You know, see, this is what happens when you get democracy. Everybody goes crazy and argues with one another. Authoritarianism is so much simpler is kind of the message. But you also have this community of people who are known as conspiracy entrepreneurs, are grifters who go into this space, maximum cynicism, knowing that if you can find a community who can will themselves to believe that Hillary Clinton is somehow behind the you know, a boat being stuck in the sewers canal because it's packed full of freeze-dried children for other people to torture You have a a willing market of people who you can probably sell just about anything to. And in the book, I found people, I mean, people run clothing businesses of QAnon merchandise and people run seminars and they run these sort of pay per view internet channels where they explain conspiracy theories to you. One of the early uh, QAnon adherents was this woman known as Tracy Beans online is this sort of long-term conspiracy theorist and she ran this channel where she encouraged you to send in your questions and she would explain Q's latest prophecy to you for a fee. She would ask for donations and there's big bickies in this. You can make a really tidy living from offering content and services to that particular community When I started the book, it was on the basis of an article that I had written for The Guardian uh, about what to do if somebody you love has become a conspiracy theorist. And the, the news prompt for that particular piece was the fact that this QAnon website where all the Q prophecies were lovingly archived and you could access all of these articles, you paid $10 a month or something to be part of this community It was one of the biggest QAnon communities online, had millions of people engaging with it. And the guy behind it was exposed and it turned out he was a vice president of Citibank, which is, of course, a major banking corporation, and this guy had an interest in data mining. And, of course, if you have a million people coming to your website, you only have to convince them to give you a dollar each and you've made a million dollars. You know, there is, there is money to be made in this and the, the sort of uh, small-dollar donation principle of crowdsourcing is very popular in these communities, let alone when you get to this established QAnon speaking circuit in the United States where people pay hundreds if not thousands of dollars to go and listen to QAnon community celebrities talk about their nonsense for a couple of days. And you pay to go to a QAnon party and hang out with other QAnon people and go to a QAnon market and be thoroughly affirmed in your views. It's pretty sick, but for some people, it's a living.
1: Hey, Troy, I would like to give a huge shout-out to our Patreon supporters. So you should, Brian, because we do love our Patreon subscribers. Our Patreon subscribers get a range of benefits, including free merch, access to our exclusive subscribers group, and a monthly live video call with us. All proceeds go towards the running and promotion cost of the podcast.
0: Find out more at patreon.com forward slash I-W-A-T-F or see our Linktree URL
1: in the show notes. Hashtag fucking blessed. I mean, COVID obviously was the ultimate gift to QAnon. It, it really rose to prominence, you know, a year or two before it. But COVID, lockdowns, all the conspiracies around that fed into it. And, And we did really see a change. We saw a change in violence being a method to bring about that change. And I think the emergence or maybe the harnessing of the Uber right, although they say they only get tagged as the Uber right because the left has gone so far left, but they're actually garden variety righties. It's the left that's changed. What are your observations around that, around that violence? We saw it with January 6th. We've seen it with some of the other events that you've seen, uh, that you've spoken about. It it was a bit of a game changer, wasn't
2: it? Well, it was. I mean, QAnon, in the book I interview uh, psychologists and compile a lot of material from people who are working in this space to understand what leads somebody psychologically into this place. Like why would you give up your reason? why would you abrogate your rationality? You know, the two most powerful elements of what it means to be human and to be an intellect, the idea that you would sacrifice those, you know, to watch videos of Michael Flynn set things on fire in his backyard is very confusing to me. Uh, however, the one of the psychologists I spoke to, Dr. Richard Wise, is from Melbourne. He talks about Um, what psychologists call the paranoid schizoid position which is when somebody is in distress they gravitate to well they can gravitate towards a very binary and polarized way of thinking as a means of sorting information so people in distress are overwhelmed by inputs too much information too many things happening so in order to simplify that information they devolve to this literally light, dark, good, bad, uh, black hats, white hats kind of polarity, which you can see running through QAnon. QAnon is very simple. There is the cabal who are so evil they eat children in pizza restaurants and then there are the patriots who are the good people who are trying to bring them down, who understand that Donald Trump is a hero who's on our side. And that's what's going on psychologically for people. Delving deeper into the research and looking particularly at the arrest records of people from January 6th and the kind of backgrounds they came from. And this is your point about, you know, some highly educated people who are involved in QAnon. That's quite normal. What I found most surprising in my research was that this media image of QAnon people being sort of a bunch of dumb crackers, you know, like... Um, blue-collar rednecks who don't know anything and this sort of Trumpian image of this, you know, disillusioned American working class, people who believe these things because they're victims of globalisation, these were all very kind of popular narratives in the liberal media in the United States, but it's not who they are at all. Like overwhelmingly, and we saw this on January 6th, These people are middle class. They may not be university educated necessarily, but they're people with position and status and and often a certain degree of wealth in the community. You had people who were like nurses and small business owners and, you know, teachers and doctors and lawyers and accountants down at January 6th who had flown down for the weekend and stayed in hotels to overthrow the government. That's not really what you call a working class American experience because the American working class doesn't earn that kind of money. In Australia, I can tell you this from my experience, with what we now call the cooker community, which is your sort of QAnon QAnon adjacent conspiracy community in Australia. Overwhelmingly, small business owners, absolutely. People who would describe themselves as entrepreneurial and people certainly from what's traditionally a middle class. That's who they are. And the provocation for a lot of these people to go off the deep end and embrace these conspiracy theories is often an interruption to their status. This is incredibly common. And it's a it's a distress at life events that compromise an individual's sense of importance or status or power in the community. And typically, and we know this from the arrest records of January 6th, participation participants as well it's people who've gone through a bankruptcy or failed business or have been uh you know had have suffered an adversarial court um determination uh, people in divorces people who are in custody disputes people who suddenly find themselves parents of a special needs child like these kind of interruptions to expectation of power and importance can cause distress in people, which they reclaim joining these communities that give them this status and this importance as patriots and, and digital soldiers and the rest of the the glorification language that QAnon engages with. And this is not a poorly read community of idiots. This is a, a, a hyper literate community is the language used. People who consume information just at extraordinary levels. QAnon people are on the internet every day reading hundreds of articles, discussing them, passing them, interpreting them, talking to one another. The problem is the information is bad. It's bad information that they're hyperliterate in, which is what makes them so dangerous. But, I mean, certainly the, the composition of that community makes them particularly dangerous because these are people with money, like these are people with resources January 6th is a prime example. These people had the money to fly to Washington, stay at the Hilton and overthrow the government on the weekend. That's genuinely disturbing.
1: One of the best things to come out of January 6th was the recent um, song that Donald Trump dropped with the J6 choir, which is people who are incarcerated as part of January 6th. But we want to pick that up and then that really brings us into Hillsong music. I mean, music is definitely one of those beautiful Hillsong things that draws people in and keeps them there. So let's jump in to your year at Hillsong. Would you call it a year of Hillsong undercover?
2: Yeah, that's exactly what it was. I went undercover in the Hillsong church for a year, and that year was between 2006 and 2007. And it was desperately weird. <laughs>
1: It's a desperately weird time. Oh, we we can't wait to chat about this. It's, it's yeah. Be... So, t- what what led you to that? I mean, what led you to go? I am going to spend twelve months of my life dedicated to Hillsong. And what did it look like? Like, you you, f- you mean besides finding the Lord? <laughs> yeah, uh. that's right. But but what what did it look like? Did it mean that you were attending church once or twice on a Sunday and involved in home groups and other events? What did it look like that year? I,
2: I never went as far as home groups, but I did go to church every week uh, in Australia and also in London, which was just amazing. So I had had this boyfriend and we weren't even dating for very long, like maybe just a couple of weeks maybe, and this is some time ago. and But it had this huge impact on me because he was so scarred by his Hillsong experience. He told me the most extraordinary story um, when I was seeing him about he was a Hillsong adherent in a regional town. Uh, His mother was in the church. His parents had had a terrible divorce. His mother was in the church. He and his sister had joined the church out of loyalty to her as much as anything else when they were young teenagers. And his sister had, of course, married his best friend, who they knew from church because all their friends were from church. It was completely immersive. And uh, he was quite intelligent but had been counselled not to go to university. I'm sure you'd be familiar with this one um, because, you know, university was just a forum of sin. And he got a job at the local television station where he worked and he was earning really good money for a nineteen year old in the early two thousands when this was taking place. It might have even been taking taking place in the late nineteen nineties. And he yes, it must have been the late the or no mid nineteen nineties it must have been, because he was collecting records. And it was the early days of the internet, the early days of eBay. And somehow, you know, this Christian kid from regional community had heard about this kind of grunge music coming out of the United States. He was fascinated by it and got really into it and started collecting records and using these sort of new communities like eBay, which nobody else had ever heard of, to accumulate these, you know, collectible vinyl albums. And this is all going on while he's still going to Hillsong and clapping and singing and doing home group and Bible study and the rest of it. And then one day they're having their, um, it's, you know, the youth sermon that they're all at and they're all singing and dancing and he gets asked to come down on stage, which he does, and he's probably 19 or something at the time. Um, and he is down on stage and and he gets asked to testify and he's testifying and the pastor says well your best friend and your sister have told us that you are also really into music and that you've developed you know quite the collection of albums and in fact they've brought these albums into us here because because we're concerned this is distracting you from God and we want you to demonstrate that your love of God is greater than your love of music and, you know, secular music and that it's God that has priority in your life. So you now have the opportunity of setting all of these records on fire and demonstrating to us. um, I I mean, I don't know if it was fire or what it was, but the idea was that these records were going to be destroyed and we want you to do that in front of everybody to show us all how committed you are to God. And he did it. He destroyed them.
0: Van, can I just... People that are uh, following our podcast and following our stories will know I did this myself with my records. I had some absolutely brilliant records in my collection, including a Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band picture disc, um, which I destroyed in the name of the Lord. But even more than that, I actually put the hard word on Brian, my co-host here, when we were both involved at Great Big AOG, and told him that I felt that the Lord wanted him to destroy his. Secular record collection And that you know He's never going to move forward In God properly Unless he did And and he did And I carry so much guilt Because he had such a collection He had really rare Cold chisel presses And all kinds of things So I'm, I'm just totally resonating With this story And feeling quite oh. shameful To be honest
1: no. I could have been Fucking retired by now Troy If it wasn't for you I could have cashed These records in Now with the vinyl revival And I would have been Absolutely coined up. Fuck you. Oh, it's I.
2: It's it's amazing to hear that because this guy was absolutely broken that he'd done it, and he told me that at the at the moment, you know, the record sort of went into the flames or whatever the means of their destruction was. He realised that he didn't believe in God, that he it, he was totally separate from his people in the actual act of testifying that he was part of them was that it ended him and it broke something so fundamental inside him and at the time I knew him that part had not been healed had not been repaired and I had this sort of profound pity for him and on the basis of these sort of stories he was telling me I got theatrically interested. So my main gig is actually as I'm a playwright and theatre person, I speak to you live from the Adelaide Fringe where I've been for the past few weeks and I got really interested in the idea of Hillsong's performance given the things that he had told me about what went on there. And so I dragged my lawyer at the time uh, with me to a Hillsong service uh, in uh, uh, Wollamaloo, no, Waterloo in Sydney. And we were sitting for some reason and she had just lost a family member and was grieving and was quite emotionally vulnerable. And the experience of seeing what happened to her, and this was a person who was a lifelong atheist, was a person who I always known as very sort of, you know, sober sort of um, individual, not easily swayed, very sensible, highly intelligent woman, By the end of this Hillsong service, she was sobbing because she had just been emotionally provoked in the most vulnerable places at this time of her life to be like an an absolute mess. And going out with her afterwards, I was like, I've got to write about this. Like, this is so interesting. This community, this phenomenon, what this kind of theatrical event of a Hillsong service can do. So I wrote a 10-minute play that the guy who I'd been seeing was actually in and he saw it as this, this sort of active remonstration to be in this 10-minute play in the Short Play Festival that was about Hillsong. And on the basis of that 10-minute play, my agent was talking about me to various publishers and things about projects I was doing and it came up that I had this interest in Hillsong song. Well, one of the publishers she was speaking to was like, this is really potent stuff. Um, There's a community of people who now exist, who've come out of the Hillsong Church and want to talk about their experiences. A lot of them are, are, are not professional writers and are very frightened about sharing their stories. Would Van be interested in doing a book about Hillsong and going undercover? And I was like, absolutely. Like, that's absolutely what I want to do. I will do that work and I bought a bunch of pastel outfits and started going to Hillsong Services and the legal department of that publisher, like apparently it was one of the fastest acquisition meetings in publishing ever. They were like, we're going to get Van Battam to do an undercover book about Hillsong. Yep, tick, that'll be great. Um, and the legal department were like, are you completely insane? Like this is an extremely litigious organisation cashed up to the hills and you're going to get this sort of known feminist menace to infiltrate it. Are you crazy? And so the book didn't happen, but by this stage I was so intrigued about Song and about what happened there that I thought the more appropriate the more appropriate form to tell that story was probably the theater, and I managed to convince my long-suffering musical partner Johnny Bilino, who is very Jewish, um, to do this project with me I was like we should write a musical about these megachurches you know because obviously it's not just Hillsong like there are all of these different megachurches who have the sort of same act different flavor of the same coke and or different brand of the same cola is probably the best way of describing it and Johnny and I formed a company called we thought this was so funny Jews and Communists and we did this show called Cash in Christ where we did what we described as Christian drag. Like we developed these drag personae, Bob and Fanny Comfort, who ran a Hillsong-like church. And, you know, it was a satire that was built on our experiences in Hillsong, but we spent a year going because we were studying the music and we were sort of studying the techniques and we had the full experience, like the Extremely Beautiful Greeters uh, who had been selected to welcome us to services in London because I moved back to London while this was happening. Um, They used to have Hillsong services in the Dominion Theatre, which is a West End theatre, which at the time uh, We Will Rock You, the Queen musical was playing. So you had this bizarre scenario that this church that preached homophobia quite actively at the time was being held in this sort of, temple of queer with this massive statue of Freddie Mercury out the front and the faithful sort of filing in. But it was a, it was an extremely intense experience and my musical partner and I um, used to go, we'd go on a Sunday morning, we'd go to the service, we never gave them our credit card details but we'd smile and we learnt the songs and we clapped along. And then afterwards in order to sort of, decontaminate we would go to Soho Square um, around the corner which is a park in London and you know we'd pull like a bottle of wine out of my handbag and drink wine and eat hot chips and Johnny would put his Yarmulke on and I'd like read aloud passages from Das Capital, a sort of like a, an inoculation against what we had just been through like some kind of ideological resistance To the experience that we just had because it is I mean you know incredibly seductive and it's engaging and it hits you in the vulnerabilities and the sort of sense of community and the coordinated hand gestures stand up sit down put your hand on your heart, know the words, sing along, here's the drumming, here's the speech, this is why you're good and they're bad, this is why you're lucky and they're not, this is why good things will happen to you and bad things will happen to them. I mean, it's extremely enticing. And we knew that even though we were there with this sort of nefarious purpose of bringing the whole artifice down, we were still affected by that like anybody would be. And, I I mean, I got to know some of the other parishioners, not particularly well congregants, um, but I talked to people because, you know, like I was I was doing it, like I was undercover, I was making it happen. And, I mean, I really liked a lot of the people I met there. I I've met a lot of people I would describe unhesitatingly as good people who wanted to be good in a bad society but had found this mechanism that I thought was ruthlessly exploiting them and the way that you do this work isn't to you ask questions but you're not there it, 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 if you're observing these people like you're not there to to mount some kind of guerrilla activity and and get them out that's not how that sort of works and obviously the people we met they all wanted to be there nobody was there under duress and that was sort of fascinating to us as well. But I do often talk about my Hillsong experience um, in comparison to my QAnon experience. And, of course, I've done other undercover work before. I went, I did a play about misogynists and I went undercover in the pickup artist community and that was a kind of extraordinary as well, also with many similarities to these other kind of cults and communities. But the Hillsong people and the pickup artists, I had empathy for them. You know, like I said, the 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 Hillsong people were trying to be good um, very imperfectly and in a place that, as I said, I thought was exploiting them. The pickup artists were were not people who were trying to be good. They were people who were trying to be loved. And I had, I had empathy for them because everybody knows what it's like to be lonely. Everybody knows what it's like to think that no one will ever love you and that you'll be single forever and die all alone in a house full of cats. Everybody has that fear. And that's why that community exists. Ruthlessly exploited by like gross grifters as well. The problem with the community was that I had no empathy for them. Like I just thought there there is there is no there is there is nothing going on in your life that warrants this level of hatred and loathing and cruelty towards other people. There is, this community is so absolutely determined to believe in the most poisonous and dangerous lies, to embrace violence, to be mobilised towards acts of hatred. Like they I have only cold empathy. I am sorry that you found yourself in this position. But unlike the Hillsong people or the pickup artists, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't love them unconditionally. You know, like I couldn't, it just what they were involved in was so dark and so dangerous that I felt that they had they had sacrificed a part of their humanity in order to subscribe to it and that's not how I felt with Hillsong people like I remember meeting one guy in Hillsong who had come out of like essentially a life of addiction and um, had had uh, criminal convictions and I think he'd done time and Hillsong gave him a place to. Do something good and positive with his life and i couldn't resent him for it even though like i loathe the prosperity theology like i find it heretical frankly and you know this individualistic sort of aggressive materialism that gets preached there that the homophobia and conservatism i think is really nasty like nasty and cruel but for this guy there was something in that community in that experience that was, you know, liberating and affirming to him and I hope that whatever happened to him he saw beyond them and found a community of people that could give him what he needed, you know, comfort, reassurance, you know, moral surety um, that was, you know, more ethical than what I saw going on at Hillsong. But I couldn't begrudge him for that participation given where else he'd been in his life. But, yeah, QAnon people... I was just like this, This it rocked me. It really rocked me because QAnon people, I could see them. I was in forums where they were talking about how Daniel Andrews, the Premier of Victoria, should be murdered and all the ways he should be murdered and all the details of the murders that they were imagining committing. And it was violent and terrifying and morally absolutely irredeemable. And really did, it frightened me, what I saw there. It genuinely did.
1: Van, we are coming to the end. It's been a fascinating chat. Like, I mean, some of the things I think we could speak for hours about and really pick apart the Hillsong stuff um, and your time there, but also cue it on. I mean, that is most definitely an area of interest for me and I do have that personal intersection with people in my social circles in it, but also just as an observer seeing it. So I do encourage people to grab Van's book, on and on. It is such a great read. It is a fascinating yet very disturbing read. But you can see particularly many of our listeners who do come from a fundamentalist background, they know that, you know, it doesn't have to be anchored in truth. It doesn't have to be something... That has any sort of evidence behind it because it really is Van that stuff that you were just talking about around belonging around community that has certainly been probably one of the key pieces of glue that we talked to many of our guests and also Troy and, and I as well. Wanting the truth, wanting belonging, wanting community, wanting to be loved. It's, it's all the stuff that we want.
0: And I think too, Brian, it's also about, as Van pointed out, this vulnerability. She's talked about that people were in a state in their lives where they had lost something and they were looking to regain something and they were looking for a sense of status to be regained. It's not always a noble thing. It's not always even a noble vulnerability. But nevertheless, it's still a vulnerability. And I think both groups play on that. Both groups play on people's openness and need at any given moment. And that's why someone can be pulled into Hillsong at one point in their life. And in another point of their life, they wouldn't have gone anywhere near it.
2: Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And it gets down to the most, it gets down to opportunity and vulnerability and all of those things. Like working in the media, there's a saying that, well, it's not a saying, it's a truism. People respond to advertising when they're angry and they're frightened. That's the ideal state to manipulate somebody and that's why in the media there's the, the old saying from television, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, these sensational stories that media organisations, you only have to look at Fox News for five minutes, no more than five minutes. Never, never look for more than five minutes to see the way that these sort of terrifying sensationalisms are used to lead you into the ad break. And these communities work the same way. They keep you in a state of anger and fear. They they bait you with a sense of community and unconditional love. But it's a it's a manipulation project. You know, people who genuinely love you don't try and get a credit card donation. Like that's that's not how love works. And you know, seeing the need for community and the need for love is touching and human and understandable but seeing the the twisting and the perversion of that the exploitation of that is is heartbreaking and especially when it gets to levels where people are being exploited not only for their money but as like foot soldiers in an ideological and political project that some of them probably could not even articulate to themselves
1: Van, if if people want to reach out to you, catch catch up on some of your reading, your writings. What are some of the platforms that they can do that and what are some of those bits of work that you would like to promote that people have a look at?
2: Oh, certainly I, I know a lot of people have found QAnon and on very helpful, which is why I wrote the book because I was being approached by literally hundreds of people going, my brother, my aunt, my friend, they've fallen down the rabbit hole, I don't know what to do, what do I do? And the book really was in response to all of the queries that I was getting from people. So hopefully, I know for a fact that people have found it really useful. So I would encourage people to read that. Obviously, I have my column in The Guardian and I do a weekly podcast with my partner. Obviously, if you're listening to this, you love podcasts because they're great, uh, called The Week on Wednesday, which is a news review that we do on Wednesdays, and he does a a little show on Sundays that sort of sums up the news that's happened in the past couple of days. That's what we're doing as a live show in Adelaide. If you're hearing this uh, sometime um, before the 8th or 15th of March 2023, we're doing our week on Wednesday live show at the Adelaide Fringe, and you can come and see us there. But, yeah, so you can find me very easily. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. Though Instagram is mostly pictures of my dog. But sometimes that's what we all need. He's very cute.
0: I'll make sure that I put all those links in our show notes. So if you want to connect with Van and her work, just dive into the show notes.
1: Once again, Van, just really want to thank you for your time, but also for your passion and your advocacy in these spaces. I think it is something that is admirable and it is definitely needed in these spaces that are particularly scary and particularly damaging. So thank you for the work that you do as a journo but also a playwright and also somebody who touches many different corners of life. So thank you for your work, thank you for the chat and we look forward to touching base again.
2: Anytime, anytime, if only to just keep more beautiful records alive in the world.
0: Love it. Thanks, Van. yeah, well, I just want to say quickly that I'm really sorry about making – well, pushing you to burn all your records, Brian. Well, yeah.
1: No, it's all fine. It's fine.
0: It's... Trigger, trigger, guilt, guilt.
1: Yeah, no, no. it's We have Spotify now. I mean, look, Spotify is not worth what my records would have been worth, but no, that's okay. All right. See you in a fortnight. See you then. Like all good podcasts, we've got merch. Yes, we do. We've got
0: T-shirts, hoodies, mugs and all kinds of great ex-evangelical and I was a teenage fundamentalist branded gear. I don't know about you, Brian, but I wear mine proudly.
1: I do wear mine proudly. And to get it, I went to redbubble.com and searched for Teenage Fundy. That's redbubble.com and search for Teenage Fundy. Or we'll see the link Linktree URL in the show notes. All proceeds go towards building and promoting the podcast.
0: Hashtag fucking blessed
1: if you'd like to connect with the i was a teenage fundamentalist podcast then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes we invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on facebook which is a private group and we're also on instagram twitter and reddit also a huge thank you to lucy who manages our social strategy and to kerry and Bree who manage our facebook listener group All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree
2: in the show notes.